Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me is Phoebe Watson. Hello! We are back after our Easter break. We're still in the Easter season, but we took a, a little break over Easter, which was very much appreciated. We took our Easter octave off, as is only proper. Exactly. And it's taken us a little bit of time to get all of the materials ready for this, this new episode after the octave break. But we hope you all had a wonderful Easter. We were very lucky. We had great weather. We got to see my brother. We cooked great food. And we got we did to... some proper glorious feasting. We did some proper glorious feasting. We took our own advice. And while, like we mentioned in our last podcast, we weren't able to attend any liturgies in person, which was very sad. Although Phoebe and I did do a round of the Stations of the Cross in one of our local churches, which seemed to baffle everyone who happened to be in that building they were like what are they doing and we were like it's good friday what do you think we're doing (laughs) (laughs) this was the people cleaning the church by the way they weren't other people there necessarily to pray yeah yeah i just i guess i would have thought that they might have some clue what happens in a church yeah (laughs) but anyway so that was the only thing that we really got to do in person but we took advantage of what you can take advantage of when you're tuning into liturgies at home which is that we looked out for some liturgies that we might otherwise not get to go to at all and so I think our favorite was the Easter vigil on the Saturday night we attended the Vatican liturgy in St. Peter's with Pope Francis which was beautiful. I was not expecting to enjoy that so much. I know and it was really long and I just didn't feel it going at all I was just like what do you mean it's been like three hours. Uh, it just flew. Yeah, it was really beautiful. We listened. We listened in Italian because the uh, the version that had the English like transcriptions as they were saying it also felt the need to fill the space at like any moment of silence with like commentary, such as. <laughs> They are now lighting the Easter candle and various people are coming up and lighting it from and like describing that whole process. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I'm sure there's like an audience for that who mightn't otherwise have attended any services and they're just learning what this is for the first time. But I think for the vast majority of people watching, you're like, yes, I know. I've been to an Easter ritual before. I'm trying to pray. I don't. Or just, I can see that they are lighting the candle. <laughs> so we listened in Italian. We swapped over a few times for the for the sermon just to get the uh, translation. But in some ways, I think I'll be a little bit sad in years to come when I get to actually go to their liturgies, which obviously is much better. But I'm sure they'll clash with the, watching the Vatican one. And I'm like, actually, if there was a way to incorporate that into my regular Easter traditions along with the liturgies I think I would be pretty much in favour of it it was beautiful it was beautiful but would you want to forfeit double the time oh (laughs) I mean maybe I'll just become more pious in the the coming years I mean that's a good goal (laughs) Uh, so yes, uh, we're we're firmly in the Easter season. We've got lots of lovely flowers in the in the flat. We're feeling a little bit more springtime, cheerful, hopeful, optimistic. Um, the leaves are coming out on the trees. Yes, so there's flowers that are out that aren't daffodils. Yeah, so like honestly, it's been a a nice turn. I think even mentally, like I I definitely feel 
very uplifted in the in the past couple of weeks and I'm sure Easter has something to do with that but to get us onto our topic I think something else that we can talk about that happened over Holy Week and Easter Week which was that the magazine that I've mentioned a couple of times in the run-up to this which has been spearheaded by Greg Daly who has been on this podcast several times he has founded a magazine called Levin And it's an Irish magazine. It's driven by Catholics, particularly young Catholics. And I think it's a really exciting project. And the first edition of it came out on Holy Thursday. And not that I had anything to do with the design. As someone who contributes to the magazine, if I say so myself, I think it looks amazing. (laughs) And Robin Conroy, who you heard last time on the podcast was involved in the design yes and yeah it looks fabulous the articles are really great you've got an article in there quite a few other people who we're friends with in dublin some of whom have been on the podcast yeah you'll notice there's quite a few risking enchantment uh alumni can i call them that so not only is there greg ben conroy has a a piece on politics maria Connolly has done one on liturgical living and Father Connor, of course, he also had an article. So there's a lot of great things. There's also just a really big range. There's some interesting kind of bigger name people involved. There's an interview with Tom Holland, who wrote Dominion and is quite a famous historian. There's also the Vatican astronomer. So there's a really nice article from him. So like, I love that the magazine has like science elements and politics and philosophy and culture. Like it's a real mix. They have a a round table of five different experts on Catholic social teaching, which is also just a really great thing to spotlight. So the magazine itself is digital only. I'm still, there's a little part of me that's like, fingers crossed, at some point there will be a print version of it just because it's so beautiful. But I think especially with this lockdown time, Ireland is very much still in lockdown, even with our very light (laughs) easing of restrictions. Oh yeah, they lifted restrictions on Monday and about the only thing that changes in our lives is that we can now drive within the county bounds the county not being very big um (laughs) without being questioned by the guardie yeah yeah exactly so we're still very much in lockdown so i think it is totally appropriate for this to be a digital magazine it looks beautiful it's in the form of a magazine so when you buy it it's not like just scrolling on a website it does feel more like interacting with a magazine and you can get it from levinmagazine.ie i think it's very reasonably priced one issue is four euros and to get a year subscription, which I think is going to be about six editions, is twenty euros. So I think they're also doing a free trial at the moment that you can get a few pages of it if you just don't trust our word for it and want to take a look. Yeah, exactly. So Greg has done an amazing job in pretty much like everything. He's put together a great team. He's got great writers. I'm not not speaking about myself. <laughs> Was that just a backhanded compliment to yourself, Rachel? <laughs> yeah, I just I'm just sneaking in my own praise. Um, but yes, that he's put together a really great team and produced a really great project. So I'm really proud to be a part of it. The next edition will be coming up soon. I'm hoping to have another article in there. But I thought it would be great to reflect a little bit on the topic that I wrote in the magazine, but take it from another angle. So in this 
episode, you're going to be getting a little corner of what I talk about in my article, but also expanding it in a kind of different direction at the same time. So they sort of overlap in a nice sort of Venn diagram kind of way. So Allowing you to use all the hard research from that article yeah. to another purpose. Yes, I remember when I was writing it, it had been a while since I'd written such a long form article and I hadn't anticipated how much I was going to feel like I was back at university writing my master's dissertation again, because it was, and again, I, I don't know, it's been a while since I've written a very close textual analysis in the same way. So the article... It is a very readable article. Yes. I'll just throw that in here. Thank you. I'm not an academic and it's very readable. Yeah, exactly. I think it's that I, I find it a really interesting process but one that requires a lot of attention which is taking texts and content that is quite academic and dry and difficult to get through and translating it into a much more accessible article or project or something like that and I think that's a lot of what we do on Risky Enchantment anyway but it's I think for me anyway it's harder to do in writing But the article I did was on the theme of Pentecost in the Arthurian myths. So obviously, again, very seasonal. And it's just really interesting to look at the way Pentecost as a feast day and the implications of it within the Bible informs so much of what happens in the Arthurian myths. And we're going to be specifically speaking about Thomas Mallory's Le Mort d'Arthur. Obviously, there's a lot of versions of the Arthurian myth, but Mallory's one is kind of the go-to, at least, introduction text. It's quite comprehensive. It has... If you know any French, you'll know that the name means the death of Arthur, which... Oops, spoiler! (laughs) Spoiler alert! Um, But in, in medieval times, that sort of implied what we might now title something the life and death of Arthur. Uh, (laughs) um, Very different. So it gives us a very comprehensive view of his life. Now, the edition that I have is... is, Two editions. I have a couple of editions, but the one we were working from is my university edition, the, the one that I got when I was at university, which is the Winchester manuscript. So if you're a real King Arthur nerd, you might know that there's also a Caxton manuscript. There's lots of confusion, but if you're wondering which one that we're drawing the quotes from, because... Honestly, it can be quite tricky to follow where people are pulling quotes from because there's so many versions of the manuscripts. I have just learned something I didn't know. (laughs) The Winchester manuscript is the one that we're using. And we are also talking about the Once and Future King a little bit, which we've talked about before, but it's just so excellent that it's worth going back to. Absolutely, yes. So uh, if you're long-time listeners to Risky Enchantment, you might know that we've done an episode on chivalry and knights and specifically to do with the ones future king i think we had a couple of references to mallory's mordart hair in that as well so this is not quite the same but it is also building on the kind of things that we were talking about in that episode but yeah so i think maybe we'll start diving in just to give you a little insight into the way that this discussion topic is actually different to what I did in the Levin article. The Levin article really focuses on more to do with Lancelot and the Holy Grail and the quest for the Holy Grail. And while these things aren't completely separate, I think for this podcast, we're going to be really looking at Arthur himself and Arthur as a king. To kind of sum up the essential, the entire scope of the Arthurian myths. It begins with Arthur as a young boy, pulling the sword from the stone, becoming the fated king of England, founding the round table with his knights and instituting the new uh, world of chivalric and courtly conduct, that kind of really obvious, what everyone associates with medieval 
images like the jousting knights and the fair ladies and the... Yeah, and I think it's not even introducing those concepts in terms Mm. of the jousting knights or the fair ladies, but bringing those into the context of the round table and into the context of a more virtuous style of behaviour than like the lording barons. Yeah, and it really is about King Arthur's project to try and create a kind of just civilization out of a what is described in in the manuscript as like a rabble of angry lords fighting each other all the time but that it also then tracks like it shows the glory eight days and like the the great things that he does achieve but it does also then chart the disintegration and the ways that it falls apart and the ways that they fail to live up to their ideals or even how the ideals kind of let them down by not being clear enough or not having enough breath to deal with everything that they're faced with. Yeah, or not even reach, maybe not reaching high enough Mm -hmm. in that they're perhaps too human ideals and not centred enough on heaven and Christ the King. Yeah. That's what we're talking about at the end. Yeah, I think exactly, like bringing it back to a Catholic perspective of showing the difference between good King Arthur and actually Christ the King and how those things actually differ and why ultimately King Arthur's secular endeavour is failing to live up to a Christian and a Catholic ideal. Yeah. And by the end of the story, uh, just to sum up, that King Arthur has had to exile both his wife and his best friend Lancelot because the two of them are in love with each other and it's caused this conflict in the realm. He manages to take his wife back in the order of the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty complicated story, but I just mean to like close it out yeah. that uh, he gets to the point where he, his hand has been moved to exile the people he loves most, to wage war, and then he's ultimately betrayed by his son Mordred who takes over the realm while he's away fighting this battle and it shows just the collapse of the Arthurian dream of Camelot and and that community and civilization of high ideals. So I think maybe to begin with we should talk a little bit about why this is at all within a Christian context. Obviously the culture in which it was written was a Christian culture. Um, It was pre-Reformation so it was a Catholic culture. There are plenty of references to going to mass yes. and getting shriven. <laughs> All of those things. But I think it's important to lay out some of the ways in which the story itself really places King Arthur within a sort of biblical framework or prefiguring. Like, like there's a lot of references to parts of the Bible to kind of inform your vision of Arthur. And I think so much of that is going towards constructing him as this good king and I think it's really interesting and important to look at how the story tells you how to see him through a biblical lens. Yeah absolutely like it's this drawing on to start just the feast days to start with. Mm -hmm. Yeah exactly about the feast days it everything happens in like you know they might as well not have months because everything just happens on feast days. (laughs) I love that I wish we should have like timed everything by a Pentecost in ordinary time after the feast of the assumption. Yeah yeah. How much of a mouthful would that be? Exactly but yeah so if anything at all happens in the stories you can bet it happens on a feast day. (laughs) So a classic example of that is when King Arthur is pulling the sword from the stone. To to begin with, and if you know, this is what is actually in the Disney film, The Sword and the Stone. But essentially, there's a a big jousting event happening and there's a big kerfuffle. At Christmas. At Christmas. And 
Arthur pulls the sword from the stone, but without anyone seeing it. So you have this repetition of he has to show these people and these people. And so it begins at Christmas. He pulls the sword from the stone and then it, it follows on from there. If you want to read that out, Phoebe. Therewithal, they went unto the archbishop and told him how the sword was achieved and by whom. And on the twelfth day, all the barons came thither and to essay to take the sword, who that would essay. But therefore, them all, they might none take it out but Arthur. Wherefore, there were many lords wroth, and said it was a great shame unto them all and the realm to be overgoverned with a boy of no high blood born. So they fell out at that time that it was put off till Candlemas. And then all the barons should meet there again. But always the ten knights were ordained to watch the sword day and night. And so they set a pavilion over the stone and the sword, and five always watched. So at Candlemas many more great lords came thither, for to have won the sword, but there might none prevail. And right as Arthur did at Christmas, he did at Candlemas, and pulled out the sword easily, whereof the barons were sore grieved, and put it off in delay till the high feast of Easter. And as Arthur sped before, so he did at Easter. And yet there were some of the great lords that had indignation that Arthur should be king, and put it off till a delay till the feast of Pentecost. And then he's crowned at Pentecost. <laughs> yeah, so I just love that, that there's that sense of it's almost like ramping up. And I'm saying the article about it's like you're waiting for the profusion of grace and like their vision of Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit comes down. And so that's the moment where you're most most likely to receive a sort of outpouring of grace. And so the story has it that like he tries it. They were like, no, it doesn't work now. It doesn't work now. You have to try again at another time and another time and another time. And you're sort of building this crescendo up to Pentecost as this like moment, which actually fulfills the needed in the minds of the people around him, like the needed grace for that moment to actually happen and be accepted and show himself to be the, the good king. And very appropriately, you have all of the common people then crying out and declaring that Arthur will be their king. Yeah. And claiming him in that role that in some ways superseding the lords and the barons that are resisting this king. Yeah. It's interesting as well. Absolutely. And I think it's important that from that very start moment that Arthur is set up as a king that is not only loved, but... It's seen as someone who's going to bring about this godly change in, in the realm, that this is going to be a force for good. Um, I have a quote here. So when he's going through his coronation, it says, And at the Feast of Pentecost, all manner of men essayed to pull the sword that would essay, but none might prevail but Arthur, and pulled it out afore all the lords and commons that were there. Wherefore, all the commons cried at once, We will have Arthur unto our king. We will put him no more in delay, for we all see that it is God's will that he shall be our king. And who that holdeth against him, we will slay him. And therewithal they kneeled at once, both rich and poor, and cried Arthur mercy, because they had delayed him so long. And Arthur forgave them, and took the sword between both his hands, and offered it up on the altar where the archbishop was. And so was he made a knight of the best man that was there. And anon was the coronation made. And there was he sworn unto his lords and the commons, for to be a true king, to stand with true justice, from thenceforth the days of his life. 
Also then he made all lords that held of the crown to come in, and to do service as they ought to do. And there were many complaints made unto Sir Arthur of great wrongs that were done since the death of King Uther, of many lands that were bereaved lords, knights, ladies, and gentlemen. Wherefore King Arthur made the lands to be given again unto them that owned them. So there's this sense of not only does he immediately begin with mercy and peace and justice, he gives back what is due to people. He's righting wrongs. Absolutely. And King Uther, for anyone who isn't familiar, is King Arthur's father who has died. Yes, although it was unknown to Arthur yeah. until this time. He, is, he, he comes to this as a common boy and then is revealed to be the son of King Uther. But, and I think maybe we could spend a little bit of time talking about this, it's not actually like it all goes very smoothly from there. Like, I mean, it goes downhill pretty quickly, actually. <laughs> um, I think something that catches at least me by surprise when I read the story of King Arthur is that for a story that, at least in the way that it's portrayed in normally in media, is a sort of shining example of virtue and that's sort of the point of the story. It's like this is the moment when people were the best. It was the Knights of the Round Table Writing wrongs and being good men and being the types of warriors that you ought to be. Yeah, it's the shining stars of knighthood and the wondrous, virtuous ladies that mm-hmm. you picture. And it's not. It's really not. Like, the first pages are like, oh, and this is how King Uther tricked this woman who was already married into sleeping with him. And that is how King Arthur was conceived. And you're like, oh, this isn't a great start. And it, like, continues throughout the whole story. Yeah, like, very soon after King Arthur is crowned, one of the next things you hear, just like two pages later... He's gone and slept with his sister, not knowing that she's his sister. Mm. Or at least half-sister, but yeah. Half-sister, yeah. They just say sister. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a close relation. Yeah. And had a child by her. And had a, therefore had a prophecy that his downfall would be by a child born on May Day. So what does he do but go off and kill all the children born on May Day? Yeah. By putting them on a ship. And you're like, yeah, that reminds me of a king in the Bible, and it isn't Jesus. This is a good king. <laughs> and for again, e- interestingly, for a king that begins his journey on Christmas Day, I think it's even more deliberately pointed that like this is really a King Herod moment for him. And then that's a mistake that comes back to haunt him. Yeah. Also, yeah, because as you might have guessed, he. Despite all of that, he fails to kill his son, Mordred. So Mordred comes back in and and messes everything up again later. But yeah, I think it's just really interesting that despite the fact that this is sort of centred on ideals and is portrayed as being about ideals, the text itself is constantly plagued by people behaving really badly and being very broken and not living up to their own ideals. And it's almost like they can't escape from that. And we see that a lot in the knights. But you you see it with King Arthur, who is held up as this good person and who is both shown to be this Christian king from that paragraph that I read out and yet almost instantly becomes King Herod. And I think it's really interesting the ways that it shows the temptations of power and shows the ways that you can fail and abuse your position. And yet he's not flat out condemned for that Mm -hmm. in that he still continues to be good King Arthur establishing the round table, setting order to the realm, putting in this code of chivalry. Yeah. And as we're about to talk about, 
going becoming emperor of Rome, setting other parts of the world to right. Yeah. That there is also a forgiveness for that sin, that it still has a consequence. Yeah. But there is also forgiveness. Absolutely. And I just have a great quote here, which is from an article called King Arthur in the Liturgical Year. And on this point of King Arthur drowning these babies, it says, This is where Mallory's first book of the Arthurian tale ends. And it has brought us, as well as the young king, back to the liturgical and biblical echoes of the early narrative. After all, the liturgical year is a cycle, and Arthur cannot simply turn his back on it and imagine it is ended. He can all too easily find himself echoing Herod, just as earlier he echoed Christ and his knights echoed the apostles. Quietly, terribly, the Christian year is turning underneath him, and the once and future king does not remember that there is more than one king in the story. I love that. I think it's it's a great article. Um, But yeah, like we said, just one more sort of biblical element to it, which I think is really funny. There's just this one book in the series of books, so it like, obviously... A manuscript split up into several books. In one of the books, it's like, Arthur goes on a crusade to Rome to reclaim Rome from, I can't even quite remember who, some form of villainous um, <laughs> usurpers. And he goes to liberate Rome and just becomes Emperor of Rome. And then casually, like. Casually. And then it pretty much instantly goes back to England. And you're like, like how <laughs> and like puts other people in charge as he's going back like of parts of France and yeah. things like that and so you, you know it's almost like whacking you over the head with how important and good and you know notable King Arthur is like he's not even just King of England he's Emperor of Rome putting all of Christendom to right yeah it says that he gave lands and realms unto his servants and knights to every rich after his desert in such wise that none complained, rich nor poor. Yeah. So, you know, he's also the good emperor of Rome. (laughs) So, yeah, I just think that early part of the narrative really sets him up as this quasi-biblical figure that he is carrying on this tradition. It's important at this moment to kind of then look at what is the core of what King Arthur is doing. Like, what is it that is specific to him and different about him that sets him apart? And what it it really boils down to is this moment. It comes after the drowning of the babies, but before when he becomes Emperor of Rome, where he institutes what's called the Pentecostal Oath. So on his day of his wedding to Guinevere, and I think another, like, yes, it's when he becomes king of all the realms. So he obviously is crown king, as we read earlier, but he still has to conquer lots of lands and there's people who like stand against him. So once he has won all of those battles, it's at that point that he institutes this Pentecostal oath, which is where he gathers the knights around him and informs them of how he wants them to act under him as king. And it's when he institutes the round table. Yeah. And similar to how we do at Easter with our baptismal vows, it's an oath that's renewed every year at Pentecost. Mm hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think, actually, I hadn't even thought of that renewal of the baptismal vows. I only just thought of it. (laughs) (laughs) But that's really true, which is that because this forms the very centre of what Arthur considers his moral code. Like, this is the moment in which he lays out his plan for his reign. It says, Then the king established all his knights, and them that were of lands not rich... He gave them lands and charged them never to do outrageousity nor murder and always to flee treason. 
also by no means to be cruel, but to give mercy unto him that asketh mercy, upon pain of forfeiture of their worthship and lordship of King Arthur for evermore, and always to do ladies, damsels, and gentlewomen succour upon pain of death, also that no man take no battles in a wrongful quarrel for no law, nor for no world's goods. Unto this were all the knights sworn of the round table, both old and young, and every year they were sworn at the high feast of Pentecost. And I think you'd better just take a moment to explain worthship, because that confused me. Yeah, if anyone's ever reading the Arthurian myths, the one word that does trip people up is worship, which I think as Catholics were very careful about what we use worship about. I think maybe in reaction to the accusations of that we worship Mary. But at that time, what that word is, is actually worthship, the thing that you put worth in or deserving of seeing worth in. So almost your own honour. Yeah, it's a, it's a word to do with honour rather than divine homage. Yeah. So essentially to sum up in more modern language what is happening there, he's giving the knights that he loves lands. And as you've already probably figured out, giving lands to people in this story is very important in terms of establishing them um but it's like don't do murder don't start battles for your own good or for to take lands give mercy when people ask for mercy and i think one that people think very much of when it comes to knights and ladies is always defer to the ladies (laughs) (laughs) always help the lady yeah doesn't oblige them to defer to them yeah i don't know whether that's unfortunate or not (laughs) there's this centrality of looking to help the ladies notably as phoebe pointed out gentle women it's not all women it's only gentle women but... ladies damsels and gentle women <laughs> those poor peasant women don't need any help <laughs> but yeah and similarly it's not it doesn't call up the actual poor or even the religious mm. interestingly yeah um that there is a sense later on that they are bound to respect and help the monks in the land and also they then go to those monks for aid yeah quite a lot but it also asks something really hard of them like to give mercy when asked for mercy and in that context that's not done in cold blood that's you're in a battle and you're so there's someone you're really angry with and then they're asking for mercy mm-hmm. and it's that tension of whether they can bring themselves to give that mercy or not. Yeah. These are very bloodthirsty people. <laughs> very bloodthirsty. And I think it is good when we're like outlining this that, you know, maybe like we were saying, pulling out some of the ways that we can immediately see that the oath doesn't cover everything that it needs to, but it is steering away from a very bloodthirsty society that is happy to spill blood, to get whatever you want and to usurp your power in a way. And so it is a very profound movement to say that, no, I as King Arthur, I'm going to instruct my knights to always uphold this particular moral standard. And I think it's also good to maybe highlight, which is something I touch on in the article, is why Pentecost? Like, why is Pentecost so important as this moment? And I think the first element of it is pretty straightforward. It's when the Holy Spirit comes down on the apostles and they go out into the world and live out the 
mission that Christ has set them on. And so obviously there's a very natural comparison between the knights going out into England and and being the witness of King Arthur's moral code in that way and living out what he wants from, from their lives and their livelihoods. And the other element of it is that as with most things over the Easter season, there's also a Old Testament parallel feast, which for Pentecost was the receiving of, of the Ten Commandments. And so again, we see King Arthur giving the set of instructions, sort of inscribed in stone, as it were, to his followers. And I think it's just a really neat encapsulation of how this is both the, the law that is set down for them and also the encouragement to go out into the world and live that life. And I think in some ways then it's also quite fun that going forward Pentecost becomes this day where King Arthur expects them to come back with all of the things that they've done and give an account of the great deeds that they've done on his behalf. And also that like there's always a sort of supernatural element to the day. He refuses to eat his dinner until something marvellous has happened. <laughs> that and seems so, like such an outrageous thing. There is that sense of it being a day where wonder happens and that you get to see the fruits of your labour and you get to see how, how close you are to the mission of, of King Arthur. Yeah. And just going back to that idea of Pentecost to Passover, you you say in the article that with his oath, Arthur forms his own kind of mosaic law, not divinely dictated, but an attempt to order the knights towards virtue in their actions and aspirations. And I think what's really interesting there is that the mosaic law comes from a people that cannot live out the Ten Commandments. Mm. It's a people that can't live up to the highest standard yeah, and therefore have a more stringent but more outward looking standard put on them to try and get them to a place where they can then live out the Ten Commandments. And I think that's some of what we see in the text is that working towards the quest for the Holy Grail and that like culmination of great knighthood and great virtue by working in the small things first and the code isn't perfect, mm. but it's getting them somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really, really good. And I think maybe it's a good moment then to turn to the once and future king, because I think what T.H. White does in this, I hate, it's not a modern retelling. That sounds like it, it's taking place in the 1950s. It is a retelling by a much more modern author of the Arthurian myths is that he gives a lot of time and space to sort of exploring King Arthur's thoughts in setting up this system and what he is attempting to do and then obviously it gives you more space to expand into where it goes wrong the turning moment is when King Arthur is in the beginning and like we said he's trying to conquer all of these parts of England to unite England and he has what he considers a great time in a battle like he just has fun and he mentions this to Merlin and Merlin lectures him about how he's only thinking it's fun because he's covered in armour and he's not thinking about the peasants who had to carry the armour for him and had a much greater chance of being injured or killed in battles because they weren't seen as worth protecting because they weren't lords, they were just peasants, like who cares? And like that was very much the mentality of that worldview. And very tellingly, this is a part that's completely glossed over in Le Mort d'Arterre is mm -hmm. the idea that there would be anyone around the knights. Yeah being hurt or being worth mentioning. Yeah. And so Merlin says, 
What is all this chivalry anyway? It simply means being rich enough to have a castle and a suit of armour, and then, when you have them, you make the Saxon people do what you like. The only risk you run is getting a few bruises, if you happen to come across another knight. And then he goes on to say, This turbulence does not cost them anything themselves, because they are dressed in armour, and you seem to enjoy it too. But look at the country. Look at the barns burnt and the dead men's legs sticking out of ponds and the horses with swelled bellies by the roadside and the mills falling down and the money burned and nobody daring to walk abroad with gold or ornaments in their clothes. That is chivalry nowadays. That is the Uther Pendragon touch. And then you talk about a battle being fun. Arthur says, I was thinking of myself. I ought to have thought of the people who had no armour. Might isn't right, is it, Merlin? And so this centrality of might is right is what Arthur spends his whole life trying to turn away from. That just because you have the power doesn't make you right. Yeah, and I think it's coming from that place of might is right and trying to put might to the service of good Mm. that he then starts to see how that still enables the form of battle and the doing violence that by trying to make it to a good purpose, it still fails to see that that isn't what we should be falling to by default. Yeah. And that there is a higher ideal again than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he's kind of striving after this justice, but with a society of people who have gotten into their heads that might is right so long as it's in, within the bounds of the chivalric code. Yeah, that like turning violence to a good end and not questioning whether violence is the problem to begin with but I think there is also something which says that he's put in this really painful position where he suddenly now appreciates the value of human life and yet he the path that he sets himself on is to become the the absolute ruler of England so as to institute a system of governance that would have more dignity for people But he's in this situation where in order to do that, he must have people die. And I think it's really interesting to see the way that he really wrestles with that. Yeah, he he must still use might to enforce that. We're just coming back to the idea of the Mosaic law not being the perfect law and pulling people out of somewhere, Mm -hmm. uh, but only being working for it, only working for a time. Yeah. That, yeah, it's him trying to pull his people out of somewhere and the way he does that isn't perfect because he can't do the perfect thing either. Yeah, I love the quote that is in the middle of him actually trying to set this up. It says, The king put his head in his hands and looked miserably at the table between his elbows. He was a kind, conscientious, peace-loving fellow who had been afflicted in his youth by a tutor of genius. Between the two of them, they had worked out their theory that killing people and being a tyrant over them was wrong. To stop this sort of thing... They had invented the idea of the table, a vague idea like democracy or sportsmanship or morals. And now, in an effort to impose a world of peace, he found himself up to the elbows in blood. When he was feeling healthy, he did not grieve much because he knew the dilemma was inevitable. But in weak moments, he was persecuted by shame and indecision. He was one of the first Nordic men who had invented civilization or who had desired to do otherwise than Attila the Hun had done. And the battle against chaos sometimes did not seem to be worth fighting. He often taught that it might have been better for all his dead soldiers to be alive, 
even if they had lived under tyranny and madness, rather than be quite dead. Chilling. And I think that's really looking at the cost of leadership as well, Mm. that there will be dilemmas. And in that form of leadership, there will always be decisions that have consequences for other people in a very real manner. Yeah. What reading both The Once of Future King and Mallory's Mordar Tear is that it really opens my mind and my heart to sympathy for those who are in positions of political leadership. And I think in this day and age, it's very easy to just hate the people at the top. And don't get get me wrong, they give us plenty of reasons to... (laughs) And I think what's interesting about reading these books is that it does make you question, like, how do you get someone good to lead? And how do you find a way of having goodness be a leading force? Because there's so much to tempt you to let yourself down along the way and lose your ideals and your morals. But that there is a sense of genuinely praying for people who lead us and knowing that I I do often think of, I'm just glad that that decision wasn't my decision. When I go to work, my decisions don't impact people's lives in the same way that political leaders do. Yeah, exactly. And that even systems that are really earnestly striving to be good. And I think that's what I love about that quote from King Arthur so much there is that he's so earnestly actually trying to do the right thing. Yeah, and he's also surrounded by people who at least to a certain extent value his ideals as he does. Yeah. It's not like he's completely surrounded by a court that completely refuse everything that he's doing. Yeah. There are people who, you know, don't really measure up to it. There are different levels of fallen people within the court, mm-hmm. as will happen. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not like his whole round table is against his ideal either. No, like people are on board. Yeah. And even still... Even the good parts are difficult to execute and don't come off correctly. And even the best people fail in ways that have very serious consequences. Absolutely. Again, there's another line which, like we mentioned, this this part that Mordred comes back to sort of haunt Arthur and that the consequences, the real consequences of having failed in his virtue by allowing himself to be seduced by someone who actually turned out to be his half-sister have this enormous consequence on everything that he tries to do later. Yeah, and also then, like, not just that seduction, but his reaction to it. Yeah. And his murder of the innocent. <laughs> Absolutely. Again, this is from The Once and Future King. He lays out the lineage and, and the family tree of Arthur, and he says, That is why we have to take note of the parentage of Arthur's son, Mordred, and to remember when the time comes that the king had slept with his own sister. He did not know he was doing so, and perhaps it might have been due to her, but it seems in tragedy that innocence is not enough. And it's such a a powerful statement there. And like we say, I don't know whether we would really totally describe what Arthur did there as completely innocent. Like he just shouldn't have been sleeping with anyone before he was married. (laughs) And he certainly shouldn't have been killing babies. Yes. But that just because you didn't intend it or you didn't mean it as a leader or in terms of trying to build a society and build a civilization together, that there is this original sin within humanity that in some ways that kind of human innocence still isn't enough, like you can't get around it. And I think maybe we'll go in and talk about the ways in which the Pentecostal oath falls short and fails and how the actual people involved fail as well. 
Yeah, like the really interesting quote from an article called Lancelot versus the Pentecostal Oath says, But the oath fails to mention what happens when a knight is confronted by more than one of these. Which is more important? What happens to a knight that upholds one part of the oath by failing in another aspect? Arthur fails to provide his knights with a hierarchy of the oath, which leaves it to each knight's discretion. The oath also fails to explicitly define terms such as murder or outrage. With loosely defined terms, there is potential for miscommunication between the knights and the king. This failure on Arthur's part in the Pentecostal oath allows for the future failure of Arthur's court. I think what's really interesting there is that what the oath doesn't have is Christ. And it doesn't have this Christ-centric vision which then allows for mercy and justice together. Mm -hmm. That the knights are supposed to be striving for justice but giving mercy to anyone who asks for it. Yeah. And that's something that we can only balance truly on a heavenly scale. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because the society almost takes it for granted that they're Christian that in some ways it's just missing it actually in its actual vision. You know, it's like, well, of course we go to mass and of course we get shriven and of course we believe in God and we have all these signs and reasons to believe in God. And yet what is missing is a very explicit turn towards Christ. It's only when we inform the Ten Commandments with Christ's commandment to love one another, just as I have loved you, that like... The Ten Commandments even only become livable and then fully applicable under Christ. Yeah. We only learn how to apply them when we see Christ do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What the story does then is show you a whole load of scenarios where knights are put with two goods that they have to choose between or they're misled in one way or we were saying how one of the big issues that comes up again and again is that they're sort of obliged to answer the calls of all ladies and there's sort of an expectation that the women will always act in good faith and with the best of intentions. And it shows that that's not really true. And, you know, the story does actually manage to give very complex motives to female characters. Yeah, and by not really true, there are, like, sorceresses and fiends posing as women Yeah, that are taking advantage of this oath, as well as very real women with the complex motivations and with different levels of striving to be good. Yeah, and the fact that knights are put in a position where they always have to say, well, it's a woman asking me, ergo, I have to go do the stupid thing that she's asking me to do. And then they end up killing good men in their service. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's so interesting that, like, by just taking for granted that women are also broken. It's not It's not that the text like condemns women as all evil. It's Not at all. It's more that it's just pushing back against the idea that they're very straightforwardly good in an unsubtle way. That like, they're just, oh, they're just good. You can always trust a woman to be honest. And so when she asks you for help, it's because she needs help. And you should definitely do it because she always has the best of intentions. And it's like, well, actually what you're seeing is knights again and again put in positions where they're choosing between things that aren't fully good. Collaborating with a woman in her revenge plot is not a good thing. Upholding your honour to a degree that causes you to be foolish or imprudent is also not a good thing, you know? Yeah, like there's also a level of pride within the oath or like an allowance for pride and honour Yeah, that doesn't allow for prudence and for the valuing of other people's lives. Mm -hmm. Like, there are definitely instances where 
because they're obsessed with upholding their honour and the honour of women in one particular way, like just like that's their vision of it. Yeah. They then like Lancelot puts himself in a situation where he has to kill forty knights to rescue Queen Guinevere instead of having just rescued her the night before, before whatever happened would happen. Yeah. Which he knew was going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> and there's this, that, like, human cost of people as well. Yeah, exactly. That, like, you have to wait for all of the protocols to be put in place before you can do something. Or even the fact that, and I think it's less in, in this version, but there's quite a few versions of the story where when he goes to save Queen Guinevere in that particular instance, he disguises himself on a cart which is seen as just the worst thing that you could ever do. Like he degrades himself so badly and it's almost like a sense of like, well, I wouldn't want you to rescue me if I'd known you were going to come in on a cart. It's like... You know, shocking! <laughs> you know, like the idea that, again, that like it goes beyond prudence that like a real knight would only ever come in on his horse with his crest and blah, blah, blah. That like, that you're, you're just like, well, that's so imprudent. Like it just wouldn't even work and then he'd be dead. And like, yes, but he would have kept his honour. And you're like, I no. just, I don't feel like that is actually helpful. <laughs> and there is also what we see very clearly in the quest for the Holy Grail is the consequences of the sins when the knights then try to reach for something higher. Mm. That because they have been living worldly lives and failing to live up to the true standard of their Pentecostal chivalric oath mm. and only living out like the form of it or prioritising one thing over the other. Yeah. Because they have been doing that, they then cannot seek the, the greater adventure of the Grail. Yeah. And there are only three out of the 150 who can truly do that. Yeah. And then one, which is Lancelot, who has the opportunity to participate in that to a certain extent because he does the holy thing of seeking confession and taking the penance that he is given, yeah. which another knight fails to do, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, another knight goes to confession and then gets given a penance and he's like, no, who are you to tell me to do a penance and just goes off again? <laughs> yeah, I think it's really interesting. And like we said in the article, it goes into more depth on, on exactly how the quest for the Holy Grail works in terms of this outpouring of grace. But yeah, it's just that sense that they're so worldly and they just take this, like they all begin this quest being like, of course we can go for the Holy Grail. And you're like... You like you haven't actually lived up to Christian ideals. Like you think you're good because you won a bunch of jousts, but that doesn't actually make you a good Christian. <laughs> but I think what is also interesting is that the Grail ends with the Round Table losing the best knights that they have because they essentially go into service of the Holy Grail. But in some ways, it's almost like taking them out for a more religious vocation as opposed to the the more secular vocation of being lords because the knights are also lords of castles which are called sieges but it's not just them on their own like it's a community of people that they are lords of and they all have these like interconnected webs of people who are sworn in loyalty to them yeah and so when you lose them, you're essentially kind of losing parts of your government <laughs> because these are this is who is dictating what is happening in the in the country at the time. And so I think it's really interesting what happens when the people who are good 
find that they are obliged to then leave this worldly vocation and instead go into a religious vocation. And I think as Catholics, obviously we're very in favor of people searching for their religious vocations. Like it's great to see people becoming nuns and priests, but I think it also has this really interesting question in it, which is that we really need people who are good, faithful Catholics to participate in worldly politics and positions of leadership. In every and- sphere of... Mm-hmm. the world like medicine science yeah like we need good catholics in all of these places yeah and in some ways when the worldly stuff is so broken it almost becomes de facto then that the good people would go and essentially retreat into religious vocations because it's their only real practical way of living out a holy life and like that is something we all have to wrestle with But I think it's really interesting to see how it's in no way like it's shown that the people who go and complete the Holy Grail are the good ones. And that's absolutely what they should do. But in a way that the the round table is poorer because it's now missing them. Yeah. At the like culmination of the quest for the Holy Grail, when that's finished, says half the knights had been killed. The best half. What Arthur had feared from the start of the Grail quest had come to pass. If you achieve perfection, you die. There had been nothing left for Galahad to ask of God except death. The best knights had gone to perfection, leaving the worst to hold their sieges. Yeah, it's uh, that whole section is really so sorrowful. It says a little bit earlier that there had been the first feeling, a companionship of youth under which Arthur had launched his grand crusade, the second of chivalrous rivalry growing staler every year in the greatest court of Europe until it had nearly turned to feud and competition. Then the enthusiasm of the grail had burned the bad gases of the air into a short-lived beauty. Now the maturest or the saddest phase had come in which enthusiasms had been used up for good and only our famous seven cents was left to be practised. The court had knowledge of the world now it had the fruits of achievement civilization savoir vivre gossip fashion malice and the broad mind of scandal chilling i think what's really interesting there as well is going back to the quest of the holy grail and sir galahad who is like the perfect knight he's actually the son of sir lancelot one of the really difficult things about sir galahad is that he doesn't hang out with the other knights mm. at all. He's like running away from them almost. Yeah. And there is also a sense that it's because they are so sinful that they will hold him down. Yeah. And he will fail because of them if he stays with them. Yeah. So it is coming back to that challenge of staying with the sinful, but the risk that you run in doing that. Yeah. And it's just that ballot, like, that discernment of figuring out where you're meant to be. <laughs> yeah, I think it's kind of telling that T.H. Uh, White actually doesn't spend a lot of time with Galahad. Mm-hmm. Le d'Artaire, the original text, has quite a lot of Galahad material. It gives him yeah. a big chunk. But in a weird way, we were saying he's not altogether that likable when you're reading it. He's so good that he just... Like, it's like he's too good for even having friends. You're like, oh, who are you? Like, but you're no fun. And like, he only joins the round table, like we were saying, literally, I think several hours before they all head out on the quest for the Holy Grail. So he has like the minimum amount of time with the round table in order that he can be sort of labeled as the best knight of the round table. But it's almost like he's the best knight because he didn't spend any time with them. <laughs> 
But yeah, that like the text kind of wrestles with this idea that you can be mixed up in all of this and still come away with your your plumage intact, if you know what I mean. That like and in some ways I think then his other compatriots are slightly more interesting. With him is Sir Percival, who has never committed a mortal sin. And then Sir Bors, who has committed one, but has been forgiven for it and never does it again. And in some ways, I find those characters a bit more interesting because in some ways it feels like there's more at stake, like they could slip up at this point. Um, and the fact that they have to endure the trials of the, the quest for the Holy Grail and keep themselves intact. Yeah, and that they don't necessarily have the clear vision of Sir Galahad. Yeah. That Sir Percival does come very close to falling into that temptation through his oath to honour women. Yeah. And there's just a fascinating bit about where he crosses himself and the whole, like, it banishes evil. Mm. And it is that reminder of a recourse to prayer in all things. Yeah. That when we don't know what to do, that's where we should be going. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so after the quest for the Holy Grail, like we said, you come to this saddest time of the court, which is where Arthur is really actually trying to move towards what we would now consider more like civil law and is being torn up by this more old version of honour and like having to react in particular ways. But also with this new idea of justice, like there's this really interesting thing where he can't defend Guinevere himself because he is the king and as the force of justice, it has to be impersonal. And so when Guinevere is accused of treason by reason of her, in the story, she gets accused of lots of different indiscretions. Really at the center is this one indiscretion, which is that she's in love with Lancelot and they're having an affair. And so in the run up to it, she gets accused of other things, but really what they're trying to get at is this true transgression that is actually real. But in all of these accusations, it's other people that have to stand up for her other than King Arthur, her husband, because he is the force of justice and he has to try and be impartial if he's going to actually institute real justice. Yeah, it's this really fascinating quote. Again, this is actually from The Once and Future King. It says, You'll find, he explained, that when the kings are bullies who believe in force, the people are bullies too. If I don't stand for the law, I won't have any law among my people. And naturally, I want my people to have the new law because they are more prosperous and I am more prosperous in consequence. You see, Lance, I have to be absolutely just. I can't afford to have any more things like those babies on my conscience. The only way I can keep clear of force is by justice. Far from being willing to execute his enemies, a real king must be willing to execute his friends. And it's that idea of justice, but it is a justice without mercy that he is then trying to implement and it's hard and it's hard because there are people around him who don't share his vision like we said at this point the court has lost it for the most part lost its best characters and so when he's trying to implement this what's actually happening is he's implementing it with people who are more than willing to take advantage of it to run it to their advantage to trap him to, to abuse it entirely. Yeah. And there's a there's almost like a a parallel to the passion narrative using whatever he says to their own advantage. Yeah, it's a really interesting contrast, I think, between the Once and Future King and Lamorda Artaire, actually. That in The Once and Future King it just delves into that idea of justice more. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Lamorda Artaire, there is this justice that he's being held to. But 
the real fact that continues his obligation to that justice is his own sin because he also abuses his power in sending two of his knights to go and arrest the queen like take her to the stake and they don't want to do it and he compels them by their oath to him to do so and they die in service to him and because they die in service to him he is then held by their kinsman who is also his kinsman to follow that law of justice and avenge them and avenge them against Lancelot. Yeah. And he can't he can't seek actual justice because he's tied up in this idea of vengeance. But the reason he's tied up in the idea of vengeance is because he himself abused his authority. Yeah. And I think it's also a really interesting conflict between the personal and private and the public. And so when he is trying to enact justice on Guinevere and Lancelot, there is a sense, it's much more explicit in The Once and Future King, but even in Le Mordartair, there is a sense that Arthur is relatively willing to turn a blind eye to Lancelot and Guinevere's relationship, that he loves them both in a particular way and it's kind of too much of a hassle to try and and like enact a sort of vengeance on them. And he just doesn't want to do it. And on a personal level, I don't think he would have. But sleeping with the Queen is treason. It's also a public offence. Yeah. It's tied up with his status as a king. Essentially, when his subjects, and specifically his son, who's one of the knights, says, you can't stand for this as the public figure of the king, that would be to diminish your own authority in the realm you have to seek justice. And I think, again, it's a really interesting moment where you're trying to balance what you would do personally within your own personal relationships and what is being called from you from a public point of view to do. It just really shows the complexities of trying to institute new systems, of trying to balance your public and your private life, of trying to balance the needs of other people, like the righteous anger of Gawain, the kinsman of the slain knights, but also he's so absolutely caught up in his own anger at losing his his brothers, which you can understand, but he just doesn't see how he's going to bring everything down if you insist on this particular instance of justice. Yeah, and he does. And he does. And that's what's so tragic about the story in a way. There's this sense of like impending doom that comes over the last sections of the book, which is that there seems to be no good way to resolve these issues. And it comes down to a sense of like the brokenness of humans being inevitable. And what T.H. White does in The Once Future King is the very last chapter of the book is essentially given over to Arthur on his own, having lost everything, about to have this last showdown battle with his son and reflecting on his reign and why it didn't work and trying to puzzle out what the true form of his ideal would have been. Yeah, and he goes through various iterations of that, of questioning whether it's because of violence, whether it's because of ownership, whether there's a solution in terms of, he says, that that was why the church could not interfere too much in the sad affairs of the world. Because the nations and the classes and the individuals were always crying out, mine, mine, where the church was instructed to say ours. Yeah. That he's kind of trying to puzzle out this contrast between a divine vision 
of humanity and of a perfect society and how you could implement that in this world. Yeah, and I think he also talks uh, interestingly about the sort of presumption of man's decentness. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something we as Catholics need to wrestle with a lot as well, which is to be always looking for Christ in the other person, but to also acknowledge the brokenness and the original sin and the consequence of sin in people's lives that we can't put in a... There is no way to build up a, a system that forces people to be good in the way that people want. Like if only we had this particular form of justice or this particular form of government that suddenly we would, you would find that everyone would act correctly. And it's like, mm, it doesn't work like that. Like you're always going to have to wrestle with the brokenness of people. Yeah, which is where it comes back to the idea of Christ the King and that this whole system only truly works when we're all striving to put our lives under Christ as the true king. Yeah. I think we very much see that even in the story of how their sins come back and undermine them. Mm -hmm. That it is also the personal holiness of the people trying to do these things that have an impact on how they can do them. Yeah. Like King Arthur in his role, sinning in his private life, mm. leads to his downfall in his public life. Yeah. Just looking at Christ the King as a concept to us, I think it is really important. And I think the church really reaffirmed it when it instituted the Christ the King as the feast of the end of the year before Advent. That it's it's a concept that's really important for us as modern Catholics to incorporate into the way that we see the world. And I have the, the quote here from... It's from one of the Vatican Sunday Reflections and it says the church's liturgical year concludes with this feast of Christ the King instituted by Pope Pius XI in 1925 to celebrate the Jubilee year and the 16th centenary of the Council of Nicaea. Instituting the feast, Pope Pius XI proclaimed the peace of Christ in the reign of Christ. This feast was established and proclaimed by the Pope to reassert the sovereignty of Christ and the church over all forms of government and to remind Christians of the fidelity and loyalty they owed to Christ, who by his incarnation and sacrificial death on the cross has made them both adopted children of God and future citizens and heirs of the kingdom of heaven. The feast was also a reminder to the totalitarian governments of Mussolini, Hitler and Stalin that Jesus Christ is the only sovereign king. Christ is our spiritual king and ruler who rules by truth and love. We declare our loyalty to him by the quality of our Christian commitment expressed in our serving of others with sacrificial and forgiving love and by our solidarity with the poor. And I think what's so important there is that is that Christ is such an unlikely king in the way that he acts and in the in the way that he serves. Yeah. Christ is the king who washes the feet of his disciples. Yeah. And the king who is put to death by his own subjects and forgives them. It's, it's amazing. And I was reflecting on this actually during Holy Week. In some ways, I hadn't always noticed how the theme of Christ the King is really woven through the, the narrative of the of the Passion. Um, obviously, the interaction with Pilate. There was an article here on NCR um, which says, when questioned by Pilate, Jesus didn't claim either title. Much to Pilate's confusion, Jesus admitted to being a king, but not in the realm that Pilate could comprehend. 
Pilate lived in a world of competition, fear and force. He would fear a king who could overthrow him like he feared the crowds who cowed him into doing their will. Pilate understood a world in which people must make their own importance known and felt, no matter how empty their claims to greatness. Pilate's is a world in which heredity, clothing, titles and the power to manipulate define a person's worth. In contrast, Jesus had no need to cling to status. He knew why he was born and sent into the world. He claims that his only purpose in life was to testify to the truth. Could anyone in history be freer than the man who says that? If being a king means that nothing and no one can constrain you, then Jesus is the king of kings because he knows what he is about and no one can take that away. Pilate had thought that he was dealing with a religious fanatic or perhaps, as others alleged, a revolutionary. But Pilate discovered that in Jesus, he was facing the most powerful person he had ever met. Nothing Pilate could say or do, no bribe, no reward and no punishment could sway this man. Worse yet, he obviously had the power to influence others to imitate him. I love that last line. (laughs) Not only was he someone that Pilate couldn't understand, but he could make other people into that imitation too. Yeah, and I just love that. Again, it gives me a clearer understanding of that line of Jesus not needing to cling to his status, that he doesn't need any of those things which people see as being necessary in order to maintain power. He's, he can give all of that away. It doesn't matter because he is still the king of his own purpose. And I think, again, I was thinking of the line in the Passion narrative, we have no king but Caesar. I think that's so telling. And I think what's interesting about that, considering, as we said, that the Feast of Christ the King was almost in some ways a demonstration against the totalitarian regimes of those various countries at the time, that the church doesn't actually dictate a particular form of government as being the one or only avenue to having a Christ-centred civilization. Yeah, the church focuses far more on the ability or the freedom given within any of that government for Christians to live out their vocations. Yeah. And for, like, free practice of religion and for living out of those Christian values, but not under, like, oh, it has to be a monarchy or a democracy is the best form of government. It's not saying... It's not pointing to any one of those institutions because they are all run by broken men. Yeah, absolutely. It's actually interesting this has come at a time with the the passing of Prince Philip, obviously not the king, but an important part of the British monarchy. I think I can see, and I think it's more online that I see it than in real life, but people, even especially outside of being British or English, having a sort of rose-tinted glasses from even a Catholic point of view of like, if only we could have a Catholic monarchy, then we would be able to put the world to right. And... I just think that it's interesting to see that the church actually reflects that different types of government are necessary at different times and for different people, and that it's really important for us to work with what we have in some ways. And that's not to say that we can never change the types of governmental systems that we have, but that it's not about achieving one particular version and then everything being fine and dandy from there. Yeah, and that while we have saints who are kings or queens Mm -hmm. and did great things for their realm that in some ways those are held up as saints because they were the exception and because in being the exception they were able to do great things 
but that we can't plan for the exceptions. <laughs> yeah, I was reading an article from the Distributist Review, which was about this question of Catholic monarchy, and it really draws on St. Thomas Aquinas. It says, preeminent among our sources is St. Thomas Aquinas. In his letter to the King of Cyprus, he identified monarchy as both the best and worst form of government. Best when the king acted for the common good and worst when he did not. But he goes on to kind of explain this further. He says, The royal family, the first family of the kingdom, is, in a sense, the last family. And the king, who is the greatest of all, must become the servant of all, in the same way that the pope is the servus servorum dei, the servant of the servants of God. Solidarity is the principle which requires that every action of government must be evaluated on the basis of how it affects the poorest citizens, and if it harms this group, it is likely not a just action to begin with. Its signature is a preferential option for the poor, and it forms a kind of acid test for the common good. Note that Thomas does not give specific duties or authorities for each element of government, and that is proper because the actual distribution of authority is not something derived from natural law. Rather, it is a prudential judgment that changes from culture to culture and with time and circumstance, for the character of peoples and nations vary, and the needs of the times change with the times. Therefore, their particular institutions must evolve from their own experiences and needs. I think that reference to looking at what the government does to the poorest of the poor, to the most vulnerable, is a really interesting way of looking at how different governments are functioning. Mm -hmm. And also, I think, to change our discussion around a government, rather than seeking what can it do for me, what kind of things is it putting in place to help me, asking the question of what is it putting in place for those who are most in need. Yeah. And even that that question might be what is it putting in place for those most in need to my detriment. Yeah, exactly. I think it's really, really interesting. And I think, again, it goes back to this point that we were saying of how we really need to pray for people to come forward who are willing to make themselves figureheads and leaders and lead movements, particularly in the more secular part of the world, which is that, of course, there is honour and there is power that comes with it, but that we really need to pray for people who are not seduced by those things. And it's so hard to find the way that promotes those kind of people over the people who are likely to be looking for those things. I think just to circle back at at the end now to the Once and Future King, that last chapter that I was saying where he really wrestles with it, he's going through thinking of the different things and he says, was it the wicked leaders who led innocent populations to slaughter? Or was it wicked populations who chose leaders after their own hearts? And then it goes on to say later, If it was so easy to lead one's country in various directions, as if she were a pig on a string, why had he failed to lead her into chivalry, into justice, into peace? He had been trying. That trying becomes so important because he then goes on to a spiral of questioning whether it was worth trying anything to begin with, and asks, what was right? What was wrong? What distinguishes doing from not doing? If I were to have my time again, the old king thought, I would bury myself in a monastery for fear of a doing which might lead to woe. That's so important because it is terrifying to have to make decisions that might lead to woe. And there is almost an inevitability that in any position of leadership, the decisions you make will lead to woe for some people. Mm -hmm. Yet there's also this like repetitive idea of 
this being the last war, that he says that men are continually claiming that this will be the last war, that they're always saying that the present one was to be the last and afterwards there was to be a heaven. They were always to rebuild such a new world as was never seen. When the time came, however, they were too stupid. They were like children crying out that they would build a house. But when it came to building, they had not the practical ability. They did not know the way to choose the right material. And I think that's really telling in the repetitiveness of that temptation to toss everything aside because it hasn't built what you want it to build and start again from scratch. Yep. When really we will never get to that ideal this side of heaven. Yeah. And the way we can get closer to that ideal is rather than by scrapping everything, but by changing what is already there. Yeah. I, I think that's really important. I think you have to be willing to lead a group of people who will never actually be a utopia of people. Yeah. You know, that like you will always fail and you will always have to be accountable to this like renegade group of people who are always doing the wrong thing, you know? And that's a really daunting thing to take on, like you, that you would have to be accountable and responsible for people knowing that they're broken and knowing that they're going to let you down and knowing that your ideal will never be realised. And then like at the end of The Once of Future King, as we were saying, he's going through all these ideas and then he sends a page off with this idea in the sense of to keep the candle burning, knowing that he himself is going to his death and he has to pass that on to someone else because it is still an ideal that's worth living. I think that we see that quite a bit throughout the novel, that King Arthur, after drawing the sword from the stone, is not the best knight in the world. He has to pass that over to Lancelot. Lancelot, in his turn, has to pass that over to his son. Mm -hmm. And there's a sense of having to hand over the reins that somebody else can be greater. Yeah, and I think it really ties back to, and something that we talked about when we were doing our episode on sacred architecture, that people who were building these massive cathedrals wouldn't live to see them completed and that it's still worth building them. Yeah, and that this is a project that is worth doing mm -hmm. that will fall apart a thousand times and need to be pulled back together, but it's still worth doing. Yeah, that it mightn't be perfect, but it might be better. Yeah. And it might draw people closer to God. But at the very end of Remord Arter, there's this part after King Arthur has died where Queen Guinevere goes into a convent and Lancelot becomes a hermit and then a priest. And it's that sense of them withdrawing from this world to seek the next and having to strive after their own personal holiness and make the decision that, like, Lancelot could have gone and tried to take the place of Arthur and restore the round table, setting himself up as king. But he instead leaves others to do that, and potentially to do it worse than he would do, because he knows his own brokenness and discerns where he belongs. And it's also that ability to allow others to do things to the best of their abilities, even if they're not doing it as well as we think we would do it. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think what we're kind of coming away from all of this is that, I guess to round it up, is just to say that to reflect on the difficulties of living out the Christly example of kingship, because I think it is notable that Christ didn't come as an actual political leader. 
And so the fact that we do need politics and we do need government makes it very difficult to live that out and to have both an awareness of how corrupt systems perpetuate themselves as we see in 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 the book and like my point in all of this is not that oh don't worry about politicians because it's just really hard to do the right thing and I (laughs) no, we should be holding our politicians accountable absolutely and I think for me this past year has really kind of shone a light on the ways in which the systems that we have in place are really failing people in, in lots of different ways but that to also as Catholics both pray for people who are currently in politics to turn towards Christ and like we said actually put Christ in their Pentecostal oath like make explicit that turning towards Christ constantly is the only way that we can actually strive to be better but also to pray that we will see more good Christians and Catholics having the courage and it is a really profound courage to try and lead. But that also ultimately we will only get closer to that ideal by all of us seeking to live better Christian lives ourselves. Yeah. And that fundamentally, for us to reach that goal, we all have to be trying to live out that Christian life in our own spheres as well. Yeah. We ha- we can't just point to leadership and expect them to fix everything. That we have to also right the wrongs that are within our power to fix. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's, that's it. So... That is our King Arthur, Arthurian myth, once reach king episode on the figure of the good king. So the only thing I have left to do now, Phoebe, is to ask you, what have you been enjoying at the moment? Well, I love the Prince of Egypt Risky Enchantment episode. That was great. Thank you very much. I finally listened to it in Holy Week. And... We watched The Sound of Music of Rooster, which was absolutely wonderful. It was lovely to return to that joyful music. And it's just such a beautiful story and such a Christian one. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I love the nuns. They're great. They're so good. (laughs) Yeah, I love The Sound of Music. I spent time in Austria and I loved getting to see all of the locations that I could for where they filmed it. Because, yeah, it's a great movie. I think I'm going to say I have started reading a book called 84 Charing Cross Road, which is essentially a memoir and a compilation of real letters that were sent from this female writer in New York in the 1950s to this secondhand bookshop in London. And the kind of wonderful endearing clash of cultures she's sort of very open and brash and very funny and the replies are very British and quite at least in the beginning quite formal but also very loving and generous in their own way and I started it I haven't finished it it's a very short book essentially I have about six different books that I have to be reading at the moment for various projects and then I just randomly picked up this book and couldn't put it down and I'm like oh I can't do this I have other things I have to read but I want to keep reading it of all and the I've things. read like the first three pages of this and I can't wait for you to finish so that I can read it so that's what I've been enjoying I can't wait to have I'm like almost at the end of about three different books and once I get those read I'll be able to come back to Charing Cross and I can't wait so that's what I've been enjoying other than that like we always say follow us on Line. I'm at, at Seeking Watson on Twitter. You can follow the podcast at Risking Enchantment Podcast on Instagram. And as always, reach out, sign up to our newsletter on our website, rachelsherlock.com forward slash podcast. And keep well and keep feasting in the Easter season. And pick up a copy of Levin. I will have the links for it in the in the show notes description. But like I said, it's levinmagazine.ie. 
I think that's it. Goodbye. Bye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin McLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless. Thank you.